to participate as well. Uh, We're also going to let the text this morning, which is Acts chapter 4, speak for itself. So there's not going to be a lot of commentary uh, surrounding the text that we'll be reading this morning. There will be uh, uh, times for some commentary around some of the practices that we will observe uh, accordingly. And uh, the reason that we're we're doing things this way this morning is uh, as we've been dialoguing with the book of Acts for the last several weeks, uh, we're allowing that to inform our imagination and our practice for how we express worship. Uh, and so uh, there's really an emphasis on the things that, that we've studied so far in Acts and, and what we will see this morning uh, on the unity of the followers of Christ as the Spirit of God has moved. And so in a few minutes, uh, Amy is going to uh, read through Acts chapter 4 with us. And uh, so I get to set up uh, that for her, just kind of uh, give a refresher on what we've studied so far, kind of where we've come from in the story of the book of Acts. And so, uh, you know, we spent the spring studying the book of Matthew, uh, Matthew's account of, of the life and ministry of Jesus. And we saw uh, that, that uh, Jesus spent a lot of time communicating about this concept, the kingdom of heaven, and how that is, is uh, the opposite of uh, the kingdoms that we see rule this world, uh, in that, that the kingdom of heaven uh, claims truth by, by servanthood and humility instead of, uh, instead of a, a grab for uh, power and influence uh, and, and money. And so... Um, in, the, in his last words in the book of Matthew, Jesus tells his followers that they will take this message uh, to the ends of the earth. And he says the same thing in Acts chapter 1. And he says that you'll take this message to Jerusalem, uh, the city that they're in, and to Judea and Samaria, the surrounding region, and then to the ends of the, wor- end, ends of the world. But they'll do that uh, when uh, the power of the Spirit comes on them. But in the meantime, they're to stay in Jerusalem and wait for the Spirit to come to them. And so they stayed in Jerusalem. They got a little bit, uh, maybe a little bit impatient and replaced their 12th disciple Judas, uh, who had taken his own life after he had betrayed Jesus in the final hours of, of Jesus' life. Um, but not too long after, uh, they were celebrating Pentecost, the Jewish, uh, the Jewish celebration, uh, where they were acknowledging God's provision of their first fruits of their harvest and his provision of the Torah. So they were, they were acknowledging their physical and spiritual provision. Uh, and, and the Spirit did come down in the form of, of wind and fire. And all these followers of Jesus began to speak uh, in, in different languages, languages that they didn't know, but that witnesses were able to recognize and understand. And some of these witnesses said, oh, these followers of Jesus, they're just intoxicated. Uh, but, but Peter, uh, one of Jesus' closest, closest friends and allies, said, no, uh, we're not drunk, but this is the power of the Spirit. Uh, this is the power of Jesus, uh, who was crucified and rose from the dead. And so Peter uses that as an opportunity to proclaim the message of the kingdom. Uh, and so... Uh, as, as they go on, uh, we studied last week uh, that, that Peter and John actually healed a man who couldn't walk. He was 38, and he hadn't been able to walk uh, for his entire life. And as they were going into the temple, this man asked them for money. And Peter said, I have no money to give you, but what I can give you uh, is, is the ability to walk. And, and in that moment, uh, in the name of Jesus, this man got up and walked. And 
there was uh, a lot of uh, talk about the power of Peter and, and John, but they said, this isn't our power, this isn't our holiness, this is the work of the Spirit of God. And uh, the, the religious leaders and those who are comfortable with their way of life and their power uh, were very unsettled by this, and, and were strategizing a way to kind of uh, keep that under wraps, uh, but they, they could not... Uh, they had to acknowledge uh, that, that the miracle that happened did indeed happen. And so that will lead us into our text this morning, uh, Acts chapter 4. Um, and so uh, now it is time for all of our kids to come up here onto the red carpet. You see my own? Y'all can hear me? Yay! I've never done this before, so thanks for bearing with me. Um, anyway, so my name's Amy, and I think I bribed the right person because I'm on the teaching team. Uh, we kind of get together and we kind of walk through the sermons uh, every week. Um, it's open to anybody who wants to come and to listen and give it a shot. Um, but John asked me today in his absence to kind of help facilitate the reading. Um, so we're going to read, and I'm going to let you guys kind of mull it over, and I'll give a bit of a recap. And then we're going to do communion and offering a little bit different today. We're going to do both of those communally. Um, If you've been to Grace for long, you know that we kind of do these things on our own in kind of no order at all. Um, But today we want to kind of emphasize that the Spirit draws us, the believers, together. Um, And so that's what our text is going to be today out of Acts chapter 4. But first, will you guys pray with me so we can open up? God, thank you for a beautiful day. Thank you for Sundays so we can get together um, and be in your name. God, I pray that you empty me of myself because there's nothing that I need to say. This is not the Amy show. Lord, fill me with what you would say. Fill me with your confidence, Lord, even if I shake, that your word goes out, Lord, and it doesn't return empty. And God, your promise to be with two or three who are gathered together, Lord, fulfill that promise and be with us today as we go through this and as we go to our picnic later and as we go home. Lord, we love you and we praise you and we thank you for coming together and allowing us this time, Lord. Amen. All right. I'm going to hold this up because it's really tiny for me to see that far away. While Peter and John were addressing the people, the priests, the chiefs of the temple police, and some Sadducees came up, indignant that these upstart apostles were instructing the people and proclaiming that the resurrection from the dead had taken place in Jesus. They arrested them and threw them in jail until morning, for by now it was late in the evening. But many of those who listened had already believed the message. In round numbers, about 5,000. The next day, a meeting was called in Jerusalem. The rulers, religious leaders, religion scholars, Annas the chief priest, Caiaphas, John, Alexander, everybody who was anybody was there. They stood Peter and John in the middle of the room and grilled them. Who put you in charge here? What business do you have doing this? With that, Peter, full of the Holy Spirit, let loose. Rulers and leaders of the people, if we've been brought to trial today for helping a sick man put under investigation regarding this healing, I'll be completely frank with you. We have nothing to hide. By the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, the one you killed on a cross, the one God raised from the dead, by means of his name, this man stands before you healthy and whole. Jesus is the stone you masons threw out, which is now the cornerstone. Salvation comes no other way. No other name has been or will be given to us by which we can be saved, only this one. They couldn't take their eyes off them. 
Peter and John standing there so confident, so sure of themselves. Their fascination deepened when they realized that these two were laymen with no training in scripture or formal education. They recognized them as companions of Jesus, but with the man right before them, seeing him standing there so upright, so healed, what could they say against that? They sent them out of the room so they could work out a plan. They talked it over. What can we do with these men? By now it's known all over town that a miracle has occurred and that they are behind it. There is no way we can refute that. But so that this doesn't go any further, let's silence them with threats so they won't dare use Jesus' name ever again with anyone. They called them back and warned them that they were on no account ever again to speak or teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John spoke right back. Whether it's right in God's eyes to listen to you rather than to God, you decide. As for us, there's no question. We can't keep quiet about what we've seen and heard. The religious leaders renewed their threats, but then released them. They couldn't come up with a charge that would stick, that'd keep them in jail. The people wouldn't have stood for it. They were all praising God over what had happened. The man who had been miraculously healed was over 40 years old. As soon as Peter and John were let go, they went to their friends and told them what the high priests and the religious leaders had said. Hearing the report, they lifted their voices in a wonderful harmony and prayer. Strong God, you made heaven and earth and sea and everything in them. By the Holy Spirit, you spoke through the mouth of your servant and our father, David. Why the big noise, nations? Why the mean plots, people? Earth's leaders push for position. Potentates meet for summit talks. The God deniers, the Messiah defiers. For in fact, they did meet. Herod and Pontius Pilate with nations and peoples, even Israel itself, met in this very city to plot against your holy son, Jesus, the one you made Messiah to carry out the plans you long ago set in motion. And now they're at it again. Take care of their threats and give your servants fearless confidence in preaching your message as you stretch out your hand to us in healings and miracles and wonders done in the name of your holy servant, Jesus. While they were praying, the place where they were meeting trembled and shook. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak God's word with fearless confidence. The whole congregation of believers was united as one, one heart, one mind. They didn't even claim ownership of their own possessions. No one said, that's mine, you can't have it. They shared everything. The apostles gave powerful witness to the resurrection of the master Jesus, and grace was on all of them. And so it turned out that not a person among them was needy. Those who owned fields or houses sold them and brought the price of the sale to the apostles and made an offering of it. The apostles then distributed it according to each person's needs. Joseph, called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of comfort, a Levite born in Cyprus, sold a field that he had owned, brought the money, and made an offering of it to the apostles. It kind of felt like a diary entry, didn't it, when we were reading? You know, like, like we were peering into the everyday life of the apostles. Dear diary, today was legit. We were healing people in Jesus' name, but the Sadducees were up on our faces. Kind of felt something like that. But it's not a diary entry. It's a prequel to our own story. It's kind of the one we've entered into here at Grace. It's why we're phrasing our summer study on the book of Acts, Reacts, because it's a dialogue between the fledgling church and us. So we turn to the early church, those who were directly impacted by Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and we take a good, honest look at ourselves. So it's kind of important to remember here that this is not a prescriptive text. It doesn't tell us what we should do. It's a descriptive text. 
It illustrates just one shape that a ministry can take. And so in this diary entry, there are three scenarios that we see playing out. There's a confrontation, there's a defense, and then there's a return to community. And I think for us, the three scenarios are still pretty much part and parcel of the Christian life. We still have defenses, we still have confrontations, and we still gather together. Now, I'm going to preface here because I'm going to use sports analogies. I don't know a lot about sports, but I know they make really good analogies. Uh, one time in the teaching team, I tried to make a basketball reference, and um, I talked about the, the men on the court who are tall and shoot. The tall shooty guys is what I called them. They're called forwards, y'all, in case you ever need to know that. They're forwards. Um, but they got what I meant. So anyway, so bear with me because we're going to make some sports analogies, and I think it's going to work. Um, but I, I really, of all the sports, I know the most about baseball and the least about football. Um, my husband is football obsessed. Um, I think that if they just let us girls try it out, like powder puff and PE, that maybe we'd be able to follow with our husbands and our friends who are also football obsessed. Um, but that's a different soapbox. Anyway, so um, I still go to football games. I still watch them. Um, and if I'm really, really honest, I'm in it for the bratwurst. Because um, I don't know what's going on like 80% of the time. Same. Yeah. Yeah, girl. Anyways, so what I do know about football is that there are plays, and then there's this like huddle on the sideline. And the huddle is essential to playing the game of football, right? Um, it's not a play, per se. You don't score points. There's no set formula. Everyone does their huddle a little differently. Um, but it's necessary for the team to regroup at times. They can't stay on the football field all the time. Um, and so, just like for them, it's essential for us that we return from the field and we huddle together, and we break, and we return, and we huddle and break, and huddle and break. You see where I'm going with this? It's just what the disciples did. They went into the world, they had confrontations, they gave defenses, they were jailed, and they returned to one another in their huddle. That's the reason we're here today, right? Um, so it's kind of like a recharging, I guess you could say, getting your playbook straight, going back to the coach and saying, hey, coach, what's next, Right? Um, and, and not only did they come together, but they used their time together as ministry. So not only were they ministering to the world, but they ministered to one another as they came together. If you'll think back to John Ray's description of the Feast, the feast of Pentecost a few weeks ago, the story is set during a time of required pilgrimage. The Jews were required to come and present offerings and read the Torah um, during the Feast of Pentecost. And so the city right now is still inundated with pilgrims from all around the world who were Jewish converts or Jewish believers by birth. Um, and so the Jews in Jerusalem, it would have been obligated, they would have been obligated to um, show hospitality to these travelers. And in fact, it was the temple's job to initially show hospitality. But what we're going to see is that the people are coming together. These early converts were taking the role of the temple because the temple had failed in its duty to show hospitality to these pilgrims. Um, and we see them by selling off property, holding all things in common. It's not arguing for Christian communism. Don't think that. Um, I know a lot of people might get a little, a little antsy either way, like, yeah, Christian communism. <laughs> oh, no, no Christian communism. What we see is that God's economy is an economy of justice, right? Um, but it also shows a passing of the torch, that the temple is no longer God's people, that we are God's people, the early church was God's people, and they were picking up the slack. They were holding all things in common. They were meeting needs. They were witnessing, Right? And so coming together and, and doing these sorts of things, the same as the model that the early church had, prepares us then to interact with the world. You could call that our football field, right? Um, so generally our interactions with the world are positive. I don't think any of us in here have 
really been jailed or tried or anything like that for professing our faith. Um, but we know that the chance for confrontation lurks. It just does, just as it did for Peter and John. Um, we know that the world holds things, hunger and war and oppression. We know those things are out there, right? And Christians in our country have been jailed or threatened with jail for feeding the homeless in parks, giving water to migrants along the border who are dehydrated, marching for civil rights, right? That one got a big hose, didn't it? Um, so, so don't get me wrong, we're not persecuted, but where there's power, there will be power plays. And we saw this in the Sadducees and the high priests, those same guys who earlier in Jesus' trial said, we have no king but Caesar, those high priests who have no king but Caesar. They lurk and they're out there. And so where they have power plays and grabs for power, Christians are going to have to offer a defense, right? And it, and it kind of goes something like this, don't say Jesus' name, that gives people hope. They might be cured. We can't do that. What would that do for our positions? We see that in the world, don't we? The power plays will demand something of us. And sometimes it's merely a response. Words. Peter and John summed it up for the ages. Whether it's right in God's eyes to listen to you rather than God, you decide. As for us, we can't keep quiet. In her book, Pastrix, Nadia Bowles-Weber put it this way. And this is it. This is the life we get here on earth. We get to give away what we receive. We get to believe in each other. We get to forgive and be forgiven. We get to love imperfectly. And we never know what it will effect it will have for years to come. And all of it, all of it is completely worth it. We may be jailed or threatened with jail, but Christians are not going to stop feeding the homeless, giving water to refugees, marching for civil rights. We're not. And we need this through each other and through the power of the Holy Spirit who comes when we're gathered together, who mediates for us. In his book, Subversive Jesus, and y'all, I recommend this book a million times. I love this book. Craig Greenfield says this, as Jesus showed us his life and ministry, healing and transformation flow out of relationship, not the delivery of services. True love flows out of mutuality, where we blur the lines between those who are serving and those who are receiving where we humbly acknowledge that we all have something of offer and something to receive from one another. As Christians, we've become so fixated on our roles as servants that we miss out on relationships and mutuality that the Spirit wants to knit between people. This is the beautiful picture of mutuality. Each one is invited to participate by serving others. And when we allow those who have labeled victim or the poor to serve and participate in our acts of transforming love, we usher in the kingdom of God. Everything we do is ushering in the kingdom of God. Everything we do is for the glory of God. And we can't lose sight of that. To accomplish this, though, Christ does permeate our individual and communal lives. He calls the plays. He breaks the huddle. And nobody sits on his bench because he wants to utilize his whole team. So I implore us, and it's part of the point of today's message, I exhort us not to sit on the sidelines. And I can't offer you what I don't have. And what I don't have is your specific position and your specific role in this game. But I know that by drawing together to eat, pray, rejoice, we can continue to play this game and play it well. And grace, as it said in chapter 4, is upon us when we act as a team. The writer of Hebrews encourages us even to bravely run the race as Jesus ran, to look to the veterans who ran before us to know what it's like to train, and to seek a trophy that never fades. So if you're like me, don't freak out, because I get a little freaky when I don't think there's any rest involved. There is very much rest involved in this game. 
today at Gully Park, we're, hopefully if the weather holds, we're going to do the fun part of ministry, which is play. Um, and I invite you guys to join us if the worship team wants to come up. I've finished the recap. Um, and so just like we had those three scenarios today in our um, scripture, we're also going to break down our response time into three scenarios. We're going to have a time of communion, a time of offering, and a time of prayer and worship. And we're not doing this because it's prescribed. Remember, this is a descriptive verse. But what we see described is already a working, translatable ministry shape. And so we're going to kind of continue that. It's a good formula. So in a minute, when you come for communion, I ask that you kind of stay near the front, fill in empty seats, and, and hang on to your, your, your body and blood here. Let's wait, because we're going to take it all together after the song. Um, and we're not going to dismiss in any order. We're not going to get up row by row. You just come as you feel led. And this table, the table of God, is open to all who seek him. Thanks. Thanks.